Shooting Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Welcome to the show. So this week, I am sitting down with Braidwood Area Historical Society President George Corsick. Now, I bet you're wondering, well, what is Braidwood? And what is the Braidwood area? Well, Braidwood is the town I grew up in from 7th grade through high school. It is a small town south of Illinois off I-55, um, right on Route 66, so it goes along with a lot that we're talking about. But I'm guessing that a lot of people listening are going to wonder, well, how does this appeal to me? I'm not one of the 5,000 people who live in Braidwood or the 500 people who went to high school with you. What do I care? Well, I think that Braidwood really encapsulates exactly what a small town is. And lots of people, especially I'm speaking to the United to my United States audience here. Lots of people in the United States are from small towns. Not everyone's from a big city. And I think that when you grow up in a small town, I think a lot of times you really believe Everyone, well, not everyone, a lot of people want to get out of the small town. Some people stay, and some people very much enjoy living in a small town. But a lot of people want to get out. They got itchy feet. They want to, you know, see the world. And I understand both sides of that equation. But I think that the reason why this is going to be such an interesting episode is while growing up there, I didn't love living in a small town. I didn't necessarily love the high school. I didn't think there was anything particularly interesting about the town I grew up in, nor was there anything particularly historic about it. Uh, nothing noteworthy. It's just a small town. Well, it could be further from the truth. Uh, Braidwood is actually, uh, there are people, there are historic figures from Braidwood. There are people who are doing incredible work in Hollywood right now. There are people who developed uh, the first unions in the United States. There were mayors of large cities. As I started to realize, that there were lots of incredible s stories that came out of this small town that I thought had nothing to it at all. I couldn't have been more wrong. And, and my point is, what is my point? My point is this. I think that for people who either are from a small town or who see movies and television shows based around a small town, I think this will appeal to you because I think Braidwood, Illinois, or at least this is the argument I'm making, is that Braidwood, Illinois is in fact the quintessential small town. And I think that everyone can relate to the things that you are about to hear um, and if not, if I'm totally off and totally wrong, I still think you're going to enjoy this interview because we are going to get into a lot of incredibly interesting stuff. So without further ado, enough said, let's sit down uh, and get into this. So George, thank you so much for being on the show today. So George, what do you think about that idea of using Braidwood as a template for not only small towns, but in some ways, the history of small towns. Because one of the things that fascinated me, I did a show on railroads um, and, 
and, and, and the Donner Party, which is about you know the old trails that wagons used to go out west. And one of the things that's really interesting about railroads, especially, but also you know those are really just the the um, the next generation of the wagon trains, is that towns spring up. Like, what? Why do towns form? Why do people congregate in specific areas? And I think growing up, you know, even you know, I was looking at some of the towns around. And it's funny, like Cole City is right next door, Diamond, you know, Braidwood. You never really think that people actually mined for coal there. You know, you, you never really think as to why did people spring up in Braidwood? Why did people stick around? Why are there still oh, people yeah, there? Yeah. That was the, between <laughs> you know, the railroad and the coals. That's right? coal. That's what. That's what did it, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and, and I think every town has a genesis. Every t- town has a reason for being. And, you know, it, it's funny. It, I don't want to get off topic too quickly, but one of the things as I was researching this, I remembered some, I did a whole documentary series on Stell, which is a town that's about 35 miles south. And, you know, going and visiting that town, you would drive through places like Kayberry, um, uh, Essex, uh, uh, Campus, Hersher, Kempton. Emmington, Union Hill, Reddick, these places that, that have, you know, Godly has 500 people. You know, some places have 100 people yeah, in the town, yeah, up to like yeah. 5,000. Why do these towns exist? So I think that's what I really want to kind of figure out is why does this town exist and then kind of extend that into why do any of these towns exist? Uh, so enough of the soliloquy. Let's talk about Braidwood. How did you kind of get involved in, in, in Braidwood? Uh my grandfather, 1922, bought a place right outside of town, uh, right outside the city limits. It's uh, about six acres. Now, I do want to say, what's yeah. funny when you say outside of town, I mean, we're talking about a town well, that's... It, <laughs> I mean, technically, you know, right. outside, it's yeah, not in yeah. city limits. Right. Actually, actually, I don't know how good your memory is. Oh, it's all right. Uh, it's very average. If you went to read Custer, uh-huh. you, you would probably, uh, right on the corner where you turn into to the high school off of 113. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I know exactly what Visualize that, that, that corner there. Doc's Drugs used to be there. There's a, there's a, yeah, a Dairy Queen. Yeah, where you turn in yeah, to go yeah. to Doc's Drugs, yeah. Right at that corner, if you look to your left, there's an old frame house in the in the trees, like in the woods. Mm-hmm. That's my house. Oh, That's no kidding. my grandfather bought. It, yeah, you, you went by it every day on the way to school. Wow. Wait, <laughs> so the high school's on the city limits? The high school is in the city limits, but my you property is not. <laughs> right across the, the street. The first house outside of city limits, which in a way is good. I, I don't have taxes like the people across the street do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, that's so crazy. So your grandfather bought that house, and so you, so he yeah. uh, is kind of one of the, I mean, he obviously wasn't a founder. been in the family all the years, and yeah. it passed from uncle to this, and, it was, and I, I've owned it now for, I don't know, probably a little over 20 years. Wow. In my name. So you've um, so you grew up there from just a wee little tyke all the way up. No, actually, I grew up uh, on the south side of Chicago, in Chicago proper. Mm-hmm. But I spent most of my life here. Wow. Well, when did, so when and, did you and, move? And there? Now I spent. Um, well, I, I I was in and out of here all the time. Yeah. I still own a house in Downers Grove. Huh. Uh, but I spent most of my time in Braidwood, uh, starting last January. No kidding. I've been, more of my time here, so I've, I've known people here my whole life, and my father was a charter member of the recreation club, and uh, you know, so I, I know a lot of people in town and about the town. My grandmother in 1931 uh, started, the, was the first president of the first PTA in Braidwood. Oh, wow. So when this uh, historical society uh, became to be, there were several in the past, but this one started in 2000 and 
seven, I got involved with them, started going to the meetings, even before we had a building. And, mm-hmm. uh, and now we're in uh, the old Alton Railroad Depot that uh, was sitting in the corner of the Burkhardt's parking lot. Right. And... Uh, now, now, that building actually has a lot of significance, too, because that is, uh, from what I understand, that is the antique railroad depot that was essentially out of commission um, while when I was growing up. But then it was painted like carnival colors at one point, right? <laughs> and I remember this really ticked off a lot of people. I thought it was hilarious, but I remember people being really upset. The, the uh, uh, newspaper reporter, Braidwood Journal, comes sees us. Once a month at the museum, she'll take some pictures of an exhibitor, make a comment about us in the paper. So I kind of, I know her. And I says, you know, you're always looking for interesting stories and things like that. And uh, I said, there's a guy named Dean Bergman. When this building was by the tracks, I don't know if you remember, he painted it all these funny colors and this and that. He had a karate studio in there and this and that. And she says, that's pretty interesting. But a lot of people don't want things like that brought up. So I, I know him well. Uh, I was drinking beer with him last night. <laughs> and and uh, he, uh, so I call him up, and I all I said to him, I said, Dean, there's a girl at the depot would like to talk to you. I didn't say it was a reporter. He said, I'll be right there. <laughs> so so he came, and we introduced each other, and, and she says, do you mind if I record you? And so he made the front page of the Braidwood Journal uh, a couple days later. Nice article about. I gave her pictures about when he painted the building and. Right. Uh, yeah, he had he had a he had all there were at at one time there were three buildings on that corner. He owned all of them. Wow. He worked at Caterpillar and Joliet at nights. He had a bait shop, a karate studio, uh, 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 pet store, feed store. Right. A tanning saloon or salon in the one. And, the saloon's but, more uh, like it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what's and, funny and, is D- yeah. Dean Bergman's the guy. So I went to, when I went back for a reunion, I met him uh, just maybe a year ago. Uh, I'd never met him before, but he, I, 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 one of the guys I went to school with introduced me to him. We started talking, and he's actually who connected me um, to you in the, in the Historical Society because I'd kind of considered doing a show on it. And it's funny because, like, in a small town, like, guys like him – uh, you know, you have like local celebrities. You know, it's very interesting how you have these people who kind oh, of yeah, figured out yeah. a way to make a bunch of money in a small town. And he had a lot of businesses, and you know, he was kind of um, you know, he had a lot of things named after him in the town. With uh, pretty pretty oh, interesting oh, guy. Right. He, uh, he taught pro- thousands of uh, kids karate through his career. He's been teaching for forty something years. Wow. He just got his eighth degree black belt. Uh, we went to a tournament tournament at New Lenox about a year ago. And uh, the grandmasters there, they come up by us, and the girl said, the grandmasters want to see you. And, and so they all knew him, shook hands. I was taking pictures. There was a, a, a black girl there, 63 years old. She was still competing that day. Wow. When we got back to his house that day, I took a picture of him and her together. Yeah. And uh, when we got back, to, he showed me a picture of them in their 20s. Holy He's cow. He's 69 right now. And, and so I, I gave those two pictures to the reporter and I gave her pictures of when the station was painted funny and then she interviewed him and he made the front page and then half of the second page wow. <laughs> really nice article no that's great I mean it uh, tells you that you know it can be kind of a slow news day in in Braidwood every now and again but I do yeah. love that the the train depot made the front page but this train depot it's it's an antique I mean this is why you're using it as the headquarters of the uh, oh, yeah. historical yeah, society this, uh, now, when I was in school I remember uh, one of our teachers Mr. Jones 
and me. Uh, he was teaching U.S. history, and he said that that train station, when Lincoln was assassinated, the train came through town and stopped in Braidwood, which wasn't called Braidwood at the time. Uh, it was, uh, Stewart's Grove. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the railroad came through. Before the railroad came through, there was hardly anything here, maybe 50 people in the whole uh, township and were farmers, and most of them weren't doing very well. Railroad came through in 1854 for no special reason other than it was kind of a straight line between Chicago, <laughs> Springfield, and uh, right. St. Louis. It was on the way, basically. And, and, and that, well, the farmers were happy. They could send crops up north and grain. Uh, and, and back to Lincoln train, uh, there was a guy named uh, Adam Stewart, I believe, uh, he lived just a little bit north of Bader, about where the entrance of the club is, Peter Stewart. Uh, it was a very heavily uh, oak-wooded wooded area, and he sold, uh, the locomotives ran on wood at that time, and he would sell lumber and water to the Chicago and Alton. So on their schedule, it was uh, stated as Stewart's Grove. You know, you'd read the schedule, it'd be Wilmington, Stewart's Grove, Braceville, and down the line, and uh, the train came through in May of uh, 1865, the funeral train, and uh, it didn't stop in Wilmington, it went slow, came through Braidwood about 12.30 in the morning, and it did stop to get some wood and and uh, water, and I guess hundreds of people were out just to, you know, pay their respects, it stopped just a few minutes, and then continued to Springfield. And it, uh, Braidwood wasn't officially Braidwood till August of that same year. Wow! And so it officially seen. came into Stewart's Grove, and then it became Braidwood, which is interesting because this kind of this kind of goes into what we were talking about with Dean Bergman, and you know when a town is full of characters and these big names, they're the ones who kind of leave the lasting impression. Like it was named Stewart's Grove after this guy Stewart, and then it became Braidwood after James Braidwood, correct? Right, right. James Braidwood was a, a Scottish uh, mining engineer. Uh, I came to Braidwood in, I think about 18, came to America in 1863, he came to Braidwood probably late 1865. In 1864, there was a guy drilling a water well at the north end of town, William Henneby, he was uh, uh, in the Thomas Byron farm, he was digging a well. At 65 feet, he hit a pretty good-sized rock. He got a bigger bit, drilled bit, and he hit coal. And uh, it was, uh, I believe the right word is bitum, bitumous coal, which is a, a better grade. It's not the best, but it's a high-quality grade. It's, wow, this is pretty nice. So shortly after that, him and a friend of his dug another shaft about 50 feet over, and they started pulling up coal. Uh and, and word of it got out that they need to find a coal in Braidwood. And uh, uh, money people from Boston sent engineers here. And however, at that time period, however they could look at the soil or whatever and figure it out, they, they wired back to Boston. There's a lot of coal here. Yeah. So all of a sudden, here comes the big money and the big machines. And, uh, and, and, and Braidwood, James Braidwood was a part of that. He was hired by the Chicago and Wilmington Coal Company as an engineer. He was a shaft expert. He did that in Scotland. 
And so that's that they they the oh, sh- whole company a made shaft the town expert, after him. A deep shaft to drill the holes. Yeah. So he was. So the, I didn't know. I didn't know they had shaft experts. That's kind of a fun well, yeah. He was. Well, you know, he was skilled. I, right. I don't know if you want to call it expert, but he was skilled yeah. in, in in digging a, a, a deep shaft without it collapsing, and how to put braces here and there, and then sure, sure. dig the tunnels, and and so the people from Boston put a lot of money here, and once they started pulling up a lot of coal, of course the railroad was here. They'd send out. I don't know how many. 15 trains a day would go north with coal. And then the people in Europe that wanted to come to America, there's coal in northern Illinois. That's where you, you, you were saying about like a melting pot or what do you want to call it. People came from Scotland, Ireland, Germany, Bohemia, Italy to come to do coal. And the town prospered. All the people had their different parts of the town, which the Irish were, the Bohemians were on. Fifth Street, which is now Cermak, and these people were here, and these, and they all prospered, and they got along pretty good. Uh, they didn't make a lot of money. Uh, it was hard and dirty, and uh, you could get killed easily in the mines. Uh, miners were paid uh, oh, so many cents a ton. I think it was they fifteen, fifteen cents. cents a, yeah, not, not much. And and a, an individual miner, when they weighed it, when they got up top, uh, he, he could pull two and a half to three tons a day. So they'd make, I don't know, eight or twelve dollars a week, maybe. Right. On on, on a good time period, you know, during the, the winter when it was cold, was high. The mining companies would fight with them in the summer, lower the wages. But uh, generally, they all got along real well. Well, now, hold on a second here, George. I, I find that extraordinarily difficult to believe, that a lot of immigrants came over during that time period. Uh, this is right after, so, so Braidwood wasn't founded until after the Civil War, which was 1865. Uh, so there's lots of freed slaves or, or escapees coming up from the South, hitting northern Illinois. Uh, you know, there's still racial tensions there. I, I cannot imagine that everyone was just getting the one, along. The, the, the racial tensions didn't start, there, there were no blacks in this area until uh, 1877, the miners went on strike for better wages. And, uh, 1877, you said, right? Yeah, it was a very big strike. Right. Uh, uh, they brought, uh, they called them black legs, they brought miners from Virginia, and I think West Virginia here, hundreds of them, and set them up in their own buildings and Used them as strike breakers. That's where there was problem. Right. That, then, the, then you had your racial tensions, and and, and I'm I'm told the toughest people were the, some of the miners' wives. Wow. <laughs> they could be real mean, you know. You're right. And that's where there was terrible tensions. The state of Illinois sent uh, 1,200 militia to Braidwood to break that strike. It was that riotous. That's crazy. Well, I mean, and, and what, what, you know, what people don't, and I grew growing up there, I didn't realize this, that area, you know, not just Braidwood, but the entire area, this was one of the, yeah. the best coal-producing areas in Illinois. I mean, they were producing incredible yeah, amounts of coal. Diamond, coal City, Braceville. Yeah. Uh, not, not, I, don't think, I don't think there were any shafts in Wilmington. but And Godly, too. That's the reason Godly exists, is it used to be Godly, a coal town. Yeah. 500 people there now. But a lot of people there, a lot of money was involved. And so, you know, you got a lot of people coming there that want to work. And so if they're going on strike, 
to get better wages, and you're bringing in scabs, essentially, although I don't think they were unionized right. at that particular point. But, you know, so it was partly racial, but also partly socioeconomic, where people are basically stealing their livelihood, in a way, um, well, by coming way, up to yeah. work. The yeah, same thing happened again in 1899. There was a very big strike where militia had to come. Same thing with the blacks. And that, that about 1890 is when the uh, coal miners' union got started. Uh, roughly, and and uh, Braidwood was uh, had two very influential people uh, as far as the uh, uh, miners' union. Uh, one was John Mitchell. He was born in Braidwood. Uh, he became the president of the union in 1898 to 1908, and the other one was uh, William Ryan. He was one of the first people. Uh, he was also born in Braidwood, and he was one of the Founders of the United Mine Workers, uh, and the, the first union, the first miners' union in Illinois. They were local number one. I mean, that's well, pretty impressive sure number. But yeah, I know John Mitchell uh, got to be so powerful. He went to Pennsylvania and organized people. He went to uh, West Virginia, organized people. And when there was big trouble and labor-related things, uh, he even worked with uh, President Roosevelt to help break. Uh, problems. He was that, uh, 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 you know, good of a man knew how to work with both sides of the of the union. Yeah, he, he united like 150,000 people in between Illinois and Pennsylvania and West Virginia in that time period, about the turn of the century. I mean, it's amazing, like how influential people from Braidwood were in the coal mining industry in the late 1800s. Because as you mentioned, William Ryan, so he, he, he's the one who founds the first miners union in Illinois, local number one. And then uh, John Mitchell goes on to become, as you mentioned, the president of the, the United Mine Workers of America, of the entire United States. He even has a statue in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the same place that the TV show The Office takes place. There's an, an, a statue... <laughs> for John Mitchell in Scranton, Pennsylvania, because of all the work that he did. Uh, and I want to mention, I don't think we said exactly how the town got named Braidwood. James Braidwood uh, obviously was the first person involved in the early discovery of coal mining. So how did he get the name? How did he get the honor? He, well, he didn't. He worked for the uh, Chicago and Wilmington Coal Company, and they named it after him, His leading, their leading engineer. Got in it. Okay. That, okay. That's how the town got actually built up and platted. If you look at very old plat maps, Chicago and Wilmington owned half of the town. Uh, Eureka Coal Company owned the western part. Uh, there were some private individuals that owned pretty good-sized sections, but most of it was actually platted by the coal companies. Yeah. And another very influential guy was uh, Anton Cermak. Well, before we talk to Anton Cermak, really quickly, I want to. F so, at, at the beginning, at the onset of this whole coal rush, what one other thing I want to mention, and this may very well be the fact of the podcast, is you mentioned um, William Hennerby d uh, dug the well. He was looking for water, dug a water well, and that's kind of how coal got discovered. He is, was actually from Wilmington, so essentially. Uh, a person from Wilmington was quintessential in the formation of the town of Braidwood. I think people in Braidwood would be very upset about that, given 
um, the rivalry that <laughs> well, exists you're, you're between right. the two towns. Yeah, by, by accident, he'd come across it, but right. that's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty crazy when you think about it. So Braidwood owes its existence to Wilmington. Um, I hate to be the one to break it to him, but that's kind of what history shows. Well, Wilmington, because of the river, they were uh, developed uh, quicker than Braidwood. Uh, you know, they had a, a mill on the on the race that Kankakee came through, and then they dug a mill race. They had a mill, and uh, it was a stagecoach route. And there's still a building in Wilmington built in 1835, the Eagle uh, Hotel. Hmm. It's uh, not not very good shape, but it's still standing. That's amazing. So, so because of the water, the uh, you know they uh, they grew earlier than Braidwood did. There yeah, nothing in Braidwood, but plains. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, people, you know, I, I mean, I was reading a lot of articles, and a lot of people said that Braidwood didn't have a lot going for it, really. Uh, the soil wasn't very good. It, was, it wasn't around anything. This is probably why people didn't come there until after the Civil War when we had moved, you know, past the Mississippi. Uh, and I think part of that had to do, uh, part of the, the, you know, the coal discovery is what built the town, which I don't think people really realize. Uh, oh, no, yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Now, one of the because the railroad here, they could move the coal quickly. All, right. We had spurs going to Diamond, spurs going to South Wilmington. Right. They'd all come here because uh, we had the station here, and, and, and the lines going to the steel mills in Joliet, to the uh, Edison uh, electric plants in Chicago. It's kind of happenstance because the, the railroad depot kind of was built because it was halfway we just need the the railroad needed to stop so they built the uh you know a, a hub here a, a depot and then because of the discovery of coal it was close to the depot and it's kind of happenstance that the town even exists really or or well, existed no, you know you're probably uh, right, yeah. Yeah, which is kind of interesting, but... People don't really look at it that way, but you're, sure. that's correct. That's the way I look at things. Well, I mean, that's really the reality of it, is it's totally random and lucky that the town even exists at all. But I think that that's kind of how all small towns really exist. There's some. There's a reason why, you know, people live in places, and sometimes it's just luck. I mean, there's, you know, there's people who discover gold in places, and that, that's the only reason that a town exists. That's why boom towns existed in the Wild West, you know, and then they flared up and went away it's just interesting you know how that kind of works uh, now the the um what else is kind of interesting and, and as as we got you know as we got into coal mining people were digging up strip mining how could now let me ask one other question before i get on on something else are there no more mines left over did they fill them all in or because i've never seen a mine at all out there like an old abandoned mine or anything does that not exist uh the deep mine shafts going straight down in this area and they didn't go deep like they do in southern Illinois. They went 65, 90 feet. Uh, and the vein of coal was maybe 14 to 36 inches. It wasn't monstrous like southern Illinois got bigger ones that they're still. But th that stopped about 1909. And then the strip mining, where they did the surface mine, just moved away the, the surface. And they followed the vein of coal that started uh, 1927. Uh, and, and one of the reasons they they had these big drag lines, what they would call them, the big cranes with the scoop, and uh, they were used to dig the uh, Panama Canal. And they had skills with these big machines. And hey, we could, the coal wasn't real deep here. The strip mines, although they went down 45, 50 feet, the, these recreational areas around here. Mm -hmm. the, uh, 
and, and they would follow a vein of coal. That's why a lot of those lakes are curved and crooked, oh, and they come to fingers at the end because mm-hmm. the veins would split off. But these monstrous machines, they started using them about 1927, and they went till uh, maybe 1972, and then they moved farther south in Illinois. So there hasn't been no active mining here since, I would say, the early 1970s. Wow. And it's funny because, you know, so I didn't know that most of the lakes in the area were formed by old mine shafts. I mean, that's fascinating to think yeah, old, about. Old, uh, oh, spurs. Mining, not, not the deep, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's kind of crazy yeah. to think. You think they're natural occurrences, and they're not. That We strip mine the land and then fill them with water. Uh, I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about that. So you mentioned Anton Cermak. Now, he is, he's an interesting guy, uh, and he was from Braidwood. He was very influential, extraordinarily important. Tell me why. Uh, he, he worked in the mines of Braidwood when he was about 12 years old. And, and like we were talking about, there was a mixture of people, and he got along with them, the Italians, the Polish, the, everybody. Uh, he left for Chicago in his late teens, maybe 19 years old, uh, and he got tangled. He started a small cartage business, uh, one horse and a wagon, and even a push cart hauling uh, goods or wood or lumber, or building supplies around in the city. He got tangled up with a guy named Brennan, William Brennan, who was a school teacher at Braidwood that went back to Chicago. And Brennan was in politics. And he got Sir Mac kind of started in politics. He was a precinct captain. He was a uh, I think he was a Cook County commissioner at one time. I think he was in state legislature uh, for a while. And eventually he got to be the mayor of the city of Chicago. And the reason... Anton Cermak became mayor of Chicago, 44th mayor, you mean, yeah, in 1931. Right, 1931. At that time, it was the end of, uh, or near the end of Prohibition, and the city was crooked. There was a guy named Thompson that was the mayor for many years, and he was in with the hoodlums and... So his, uh, Cermak's campaign was to clean up the city, and they all thought this is goofy guy. He don't know nothing. But he knew how to work with different uh, uh, ethnicities. You know, the, he pulled the Polish together, the Irish, and they all voted for him, and he was going to clean up the town. And, and that's how he learned from being in Braidwood, all these different people are from different parts of the world, how to work with him when he went to Chicago to be elected mayor. Uh, and so he won the election, and I'm sure you heard about how he died. He, he was friends with President Roosevelt. Uh, uh, he helped he helped him get elected at one time. He turned the tide when the, to get the Northern Illinois people to vote for him or something. Uh, but in in the process of cleaning up the town, of course, he was fighting with uh, the mob. Uh, Al Capone, Frank Nitti. And uh, and he, he, to this day, people say, man, he wasn't maybe as clean as he was, so hard to say. It is Chicago but, politics, oh, after all. Right. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. he, you you could say he was started the machine in Chicago because he got all these people together, and he, he even took some of the hoodlums out of the hoodlum business and worked with them. Uh, Roger Tui, uh, I don't remember all the names, but... Uh, before he went to Florida to campaign with Roosevelt, where he got shot, five days before that, he sent some sergeants to kill Frank Nitti, who was related to Capone. I think it was his nephew. 
and it failed. So five days later, he goes to Florida, and people still think, well, maybe he was leaving town on a purpose, you know, to get get, mm. get away from the heat. Right, yeah, yeah. And then, then he's in Florida with him, and a, an Italian guy, Giuseppe... Vangara. Vangara, yeah. Pulls a gun and shoots him, so was there a relationship there, or was he really trying to kill the president? The, the, the official thing is that he wanted to shoot the president because he didn't like... Uh, capitalism and the, and uh, the bullet struck Cermak and he died uh, I don't know 12 14 days later uh, modern doctors could have saved him he didn't really die from bullet he died from I believe in an infection that the bullet caused or something well supposedly he died I mean there's what's interesting so so let's break this down a little bit because this is a fascinating story because there's lots of conspiracy theories so Anton Cermak right. you know he he was as you mentioned it's was kind of funny because he used his experience in Braidwood as a melting pot to kind of propel him into politics where he could kind of get everyone united which is so funny because if right. you go to Braidwood now it's pretty homogenous <laughs> you know it went from being this extreme melting pot of coal miners and now everyone's almost exactly the same uh, and you know uh, but anyway so that that's the evolution of a town but so he goes in, in you know and he does he cleans up the town or whatever makes some enemies and as you said probably a little dirty but he knows FDR so FDR is the president-elect 1933 goes to Miami to meet him and this guy Giuseppe and as you said, it, it's this thing, what, what, was he trying to assassinate the president? Was he trying to do a hit on Cermak? You know, it, it's up in the air, but essentially, Cermak takes a bullet for FDR. Uh, so FDR does isn't assassinated. Cermak ends up dying. And supposedly, his last words were, I'm glad it was you and not me. But this story may be apocryphal, but it, it is on his tombstone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When, in, in 1965, when Braidwood was 100 years old, yeah. it was a commemorative. Com- com- commemorative coin that we made. Oh, that's I still cool. I've got several hundred of them here. Uh, and uh, Sir Max pictures on the one side, and, and that's etched in the border of the coin. Supposedly he told, I'm glad it was I instead of you. Right. The country needs you badly. <laughs> and that may not have ever happened, but it's a great, uh, it's a great, right. oh, great yeah, quote yeah. to be attributed to him. But as you mentioned, people could have saved him. And, you know, so there's different theories. The first is the, the hit was on him, not FDR. Uh, you know, the, his physicians allegedly said that he died from um, ulcerative colitis, which I think is basically like having an ulcer or you know, or some kind of infection in your um, in your bowels, so to speak, right. and that the bullet wound it actually healed, so he didn't die from infection or he didn't die from the bullet wound. Uh, you know, there's no one really knows. It's kind of up in the air, but there's a lot of conspiracy theories that exist around it because both of those people were so important, and that event is actually pretty pivotal in the history of America. Guy came from Braidwood. How amazing yeah, yeah. is that? <laughs> yeah. Well, and a couple other yeah, things, really bet. quickly, before we move on from Cermak, he has a couple other famous relatives. Um, he had a son-in-law named Otto Kerner, who was the 33rd governor of Illinois. He had a grandson yeah, who was there. Kerner, yeah. And, and his, oh, his daughter's who? One of the daughters married uh, one of the Kerners. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Otto Kerner becomes the 33rd governor uh-huh. of Illinois. His grandson, who was there when he was shot, went on to become a war hero in Iwo Jima. His niece is Kahan Cermak, who's a, a famous radio broadcaster. Uh, and, and he even, Anton Cermak, before becoming the mayor, ran for the Senate in 1928, what was defeated by a guy named Otis Glenn, and I'm assuming that's a relative of mine, uh, who, who beat him and ended up in office. So he, Anton, I'm like two handshakes away from Anton Cermak. I'm like Braidwood royalty, essentially, right? And we can agree on that. Yeah. 
Sure. Yes, we can. Sure. Okay. All right. We'll go with that. Uh, in in uh, 2014, yeah, uh, uh, film crew from Czechoslovakia came here to spend a day with us uh, about Sir about Sir Mac. Uh, we showed him his boyhood home; it's still standing. We showed him uh, the Bohemian Cemetery out on Essex Road that has some of his relatives buried there. Sir Mac's buried in Chicago. We showed him the recreation because the strip mines can be redone into nice things. We had lunch with him. He he went on to Florida. He went on to the city of Chicago to look at his house there. And I told him, well, be careful. The house is nice, but it's a bad neighborhood. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and then they, they went to Florida and interviewed uh, some people there. And they made a one-hour uh, movie in Czechoslovakia. Wow. I got a copy of it. He, they, he put uh, subtitles on it. But uh, it was it was kind of neat. He talked about everything, about wearing growing up, being in Braidwood, wow, going to Chicago. That's great. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I mean, and most people, I don't think most people realize that he came from you know he came from Braidwood. Uh, so one of the things one of the things that's really important about the area, and you think I spent a lot of time at Fossil Ridge Library. You think I would have made the connection, but I didn't make any of the connections. Like no <laughs> one did. No 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 school age kid made any of these connections. But how important that area is, going all the way up you know south to Morris, that area is extraordinarily important when it comes to the fossil record. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it's a world-renowned area for fossils. You're right. You go to you go to a museum in Europe, and there's fossils from Braidwood and Mazonia. Wow. Yeah. Well, and and actually, one of you know the one of the most famous fossils, arguably one of the most famous fossils, and it's still studied today. I was just reading articles about people studying this fossil today. And that's of the Tully Monster, which was found in 1989 by Francis Tully. It's at the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. People still don't know what this weird thing is. 1955, Francis Tully got it. Pit number 11. You may be dating it when it became the state fossil. Oh, you're right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's the state fossil found in Braidwood, by the way. Right, the state fossil, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I got two of them at the museum. They're fairly rare, but... Probably a year and a half, maybe two years ago, the Field Museum in Chicago, uh, I don't know how they ended up with 1,200 of them. Wow. From Braidwood? With, from, yeah, all the Tully oh. Monsters. Oh, wow. Monsters. Oh, that's cool. Okay. They, they got together with um, one of the big universities, Yale, I'm thinking. So anyhow, they got together and they analyzed it with the most modern techniques and x-rays and scanners and this and that, and they figured out things that they never knew before. I don't know how they could figure it out. They figured out they, that it, 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 uh, it ate the juices out of shrimp. It didn't eat the whole shrimp. The, the little wands that stick out at the end, whereas the eyes are on the end, and it did have a spine. They never thought it had a spine, mm. but it, mm. it did. And it grew up to maybe 14 inches long, uh, and anyhow, they, they learned so much things about it just last couple of years ago. Wow. By using most modern techniques. Right. Well, and it's an, it's an amazing fossil. When you see reconstructions of it, it's a pretty weird-looking creature. Uh, it's oh, pretty yeah, cool, yeah. though. But I didn't know that there were 1,200. There's some in the Smithsonian in D.C. You know, obviously there's plenty well, in Chicago. They're, they're in Europe, yeah. Yeah, and in Europe. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's a really important fossil. came from Braidwood. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, 300 million years ago, where Braidwood is, a, a river and an ocean were together. 
So it had a, like a sediment, like the, the end of the Mississippi, a, a delta or whatever you want to call it. And so all this delta was here. And then when the glaciers came down, they stopped right about Braidwood or just south of Braidwood before they receded. So they like tore up the ground some more. And then when the mining come in, they pulled up all this stuff. So they were easy to, to get at the fossils. Mm, right. Did the the work mining, same way. They, yeah. Uh, strip mine pulled up all that dirt so you could see them. Even now, and there's some hills around that, uh, there's one in Braceville, that vegetation over like 50 years has never even grown, 60 years grown on. So they're mostly just rocky. And, and after a heavy rain, you'll see cars around there. And, and uh, I picked up a girl to come to the museum a couple of years ago. So there's a bunch of guys at that slag heap on the corner. She's no, after the rain, because it washes the, uh, sediment down the, the fossils are easier to spot you know what what yeah i mean it's crazy i never realized how active the area is um you know i mean that's pretty incredible stuff uh and and so you know we talked about the railway coming through there one of the other big things and actually braidwood has the distinction of being one of only three places in the united states uh, where Route 66 actually has an alternate Route 66. So Route 66 runs through Braidwood. I did a whole episode on Route 66, and you know we, we kind of touched on Braidwood, but now we can get into it a little bit because there's some pretty cool stuff here. But it's one of only three places where there's a Route 66 and an alt Route 66, which have then which have now been renamed, although one's still the historic right. route. But it's it's in, right outside, right in Braidwood, in Oklahoma, and going into Los Angeles. Those are the only th- three places <laughs> in the entire stretch where there's two uh, Route 66. That's pretty cool. Uh huh. Oh yeah, yeah. 1926, it started. The, uh, uh, some people called the Burlington Way had that road on the east side of the tracks. Mm-hmm. It followed the Alton tracks through town on both in 1940 route it went on the west side of the tracks, which is now route 129 to, to avoid going through Joliet. And the other side was called mm-hmm. alternate 66 and both highways are still there in, in Illinois. There's actually quite a bit of original route 66 there. If you know where to look, it's a lot of times it's a frontage road along I-55 or it right. goes through certain towns, but yeah, they have a, in, in May, uh, every year, the first Saturday, I think they've been doing it since 2007, there's a red carpet corridor, they call it. They go through uh, 13 towns from Joliet to Tawanda, 90 miles, down Old Route 66, and each town got flea markets or car shows or this or that. And, oh, that's cool. And we're involved every year. We, we, we uh, set up a booth out there. I but love that. It's still immensely popular. Mm-hmm. La- last two years... Motorcyclists come through. You know, you can rent uh, bikes from Harley, mm-hmm. Czechoslovakians, about 20 of them, and they give you a chase vehicle to follow a van. And they got the motorcycles, and they they always stop at the polka dot. Right, yeah. And then they continue farther south to the next town. And I think they said, uh, I, I can talk, I'm, I'm Czech or Bohemian, I can talk a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think they said 14 days. They go all the way to California, wow. those groups. Yeah, so people run it all the way down because it starts in Chicago. Oh, yeah. People run it all the way down. Yeah, but these oh, you know. people from Canada, from Ireland, yeah. they, 
across the world they still talk about Route 66. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I need to do it. You know, I remember when I was driving out to Los Angeles, I thought to myself, hey, I'll take the old Route 66. And then someone told me, it'll take you like eight days to get out there because <laughs> the highways are way quicker. And, you know, I ended up not doing that. But I need to make that tour. And I'll end up going right through Braidwood, which is pretty incredible. I may take both routes so that I can take both Route 66. Uh, <laughs> and on that, so on when Route 66 came in, it's funny because there were a lot of really big businesses. There were notable businesses in Braidwood, which I don't think anyone even knows existed at any point, including... The Peter Rossi and Sons Macaroni Factory. This was at one point like the macaroni center of the nation. There was the Macaroni Journal was out of there, the National Macaroni Manufacturers Association. MJ, MJ Dona printed the journal. You're right. They had their own siding for the grain. It was right almost, almost across the street from the depot. The macaroni was on the southeast corner of Alternate 66 and 113. And, uh, he started that on Fort Street and Division about 1880-something and 1893 or 90, late 90s. He bought the Broadbent Hotel, which sat, sat, sat on that corner. He made that in the factory. His, hmm. his, uh, his first uh, uh, engine, or so to speak, industrial thing was a horse <laughs> running around in circles, turning right. a a pulley that would run and, and operate the machines in the building. You know, wow. later he got modern equipment, but his first thing was a horse that just walked in circles all day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was the technology at the time. But, but it was, you're right, it was very big. Yeah, I mean, it was a huge, I mean, it was a huge place. It employed a lot of people. And the Rossi family, they owned, um, they owned a, a saloon, they had a service station, and they had a motor court, and those still exist now. When you look, there's a Uniroyal. Uh, I forget. It's right next to the Casey's. I forget the corner. Um, you know, it's right next to uh, – it's right by that where the old depot used to be. But that – you know, it's a, it's a tire place now, but that used to be um, – I believe it was the cafe, uh, cafe – the White's Cafe at one point. Well, they're right on the corner uh, in 1939, the Rossies built the Sinclair Station. And in 1939, that's the tire place now. It was Lucenta's for a while, and it's a it's a shop now. Uh, in 1939, they built it. It was like the finest Sinclair station in the country. The uh, businesses still do it. They'll they'll send out a, a small magazine or flyer once a month to all their businesses, and and that was the centerfold of the magazine for Sinclair one month. Oh wow. That, Come to Braidwood and look at our finest gas station, the Rossies building. <laughs> and yeah. I'll take a tire, then, please. Yeah, yeah. And then right next door where the laundromat is, that was the White's Cafe. Oh, okay. The I Rossies got you. originally ran it just for a little bit. Got but, it. Uh, the Whites from Morris had it for quite some time. Right. They're, they're still in business in Morris. And then the, the motel, uh, the Rossies built uh, also in 1950, mm-hmm. which is, it's a, and so they, they were going after the travelers. They had a motel, a restaurant, a gas station. That's all you need on Route 66, man. You can make a lot of money yeah. in, the, in the heyday. And, and earlier, in the 20s and 30s, they had the Rossi Ballroom. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. On 53, that was, uh, they had gas there and cabins. The cabins still stood till 1960s. Wow. Uh, but it was a dance hall, and people they didn't have... Hardly anybody had radios in the late twenties, and big bands would come there, hmm. like guys from New York and stuff would come and play, and people go here to 
go to Rossi Ballroom to dance and hear these nice bands. Wow. Yeah. And the ballroom ended up uh, being destroyed in a fire in 1935, right? Which one? The, the dance oh, yeah, hall. The, yeah, the, the, the dan- dance hall, yeah. And the yeah. rest the rest of this, the cabin stayed. Uh, in fact, there was a guy, a guy killed there. The, the hoodlums uh, killed a guy that was putting slugs in slot machines in <laughs> 1949, I think. Wow. Somebody was asking me about the other day. I had to pull the newspaper. He was from uh, Milwaukee. He was going up and down Route 66, and he had slugs. The hoodlums had slot machines in the back of taverns and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, I guess they were watching him. He he came there late at night. He paid his $3.50 for the night with quarters. Mm-hmm. And when he went to go out in the morning, there comes a black car, three guns out the side. He didn't, he didn't even get out of it. He barely got across the street, and he went in the ditch by the railroad tracks. He was killed. Wow. Over over slot machine slugs, <laughs> yeah, yeah, slugged over slugs. Wow, uh, I did not know that. That's crazy. Yeah, there's some funny stories like that. Well, and and there, I mean, I didn't know this. There was there was a cigar factory there, a, ch- a cream cheese factory, right. a clothing factory, and a racetrack. All oh, this stuff was in Braidwood. It was a ra- yeah. Racetrack was earlier. Uh, one of the mining companies took like pennies a day from the miners. They wanted to make it like a recreation area. Oh, I see. And yeah. it was on. It's on uh, South Center Street, past the tracks a little bit on the east side. It was a half-mile dirt track, and it prospered. It was called the Braidwood Driving Association. Mm-hmm. It prospered up to, oh, I don't know, late teens. They, uh, they raced horses there. They had uh, bare-knuckle prize fighting the Iberians wow. and different uh, groups of people because there were many in Braidwood because of different uh, people that were here. They had big picnics out there, 4th of July picnics and carnivals, and it, it was quite a place. I got a few pictures of it. Wow. They raced a harness there and uh, thoroughbreds. I mean, it's. Pr- I mean, you never think of Braidwood and having a racetrack. Uh, so yeah. what, what? what's there now? It's, it's a cornfield. It's for sale. <laughs> up until the 70s, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, up until the 70s, they trained uh, trotters there. A couple years ago, you could see it on Google. You could see the oval. Uh, it's cra- So uh, before I forget, so the Anton Cermak house, is that still, is that up for sale? Is someone living it? Is it, a, is it an antique? Has it some, been restored? Some, is it a museum? Someone, someone lives in it. Uh, Do they know its uh, significance? Oh, yeah. When, when that uh, uh, Czechoslovakian film crew came, yeah. we called the guy up. And, uh, and I don't know if he knew. He says, yeah, could we come over? I said, yeah, no problem. So we came, and they put up cameras out in the street. And, stuff. and he was such a nice guy. He lived there for, this was 2014. I think he said he lived there for about 25 years. And he had pictures of how he got it and uh, what there's additions. It's very big additions on it. Uh, earlier in 2018, a woman from Iowa sent me pictures of a house. It was in 1960. The Ford Falcon in front, and she says, "Do you know where this house is? My great aunt, something, something, uh, for some reason, left Chicago, came to Braidwood, and she had a embroidery shop someplace. And as soon as I saw the picture, I knew it, what it, what it was. And she said she thought some Cermak had something to do with her moving." And so I went. To the, I went over there, and I stood in the middle of the street and got the same angle as the 
they, that photo she showed me, mm-hmm. but it much looks much different. Same telephone pole. Same, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and I took a picture and sent it to her, and I told her, I said, here's your CERMAC connection. He lived there years ago, and, and, and uh, recently I got a thousand pictures from a guy, and, and in it is a kid making a snowman about 1920, and that house is in the background. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I could, yeah, so, yeah, the house is still standing, wow. and it's very heavily remodeled. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's almost, you know, 100 years since he lived in it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy. So now before we go on, now this is kind of a fitting way to end the conversation because we talked about coal initially being, you know, it's an energy source. That was what people were using it for. And now Braidwood's kind of known for energy as well, but it's a nuclear plant. And so there's this kind of interesting, this, there's this, you know, through line of, of energy that kind of exists in Braidwood, at least as far as like national notoriety. And the, so there's a, a big power plant called the, the Braidwood Generating Station began construction in 75, began operating in 87. This is the the sixth largest power plant in the country, the largest in Illinois. And Byron, which is nearby, is eighth in the country. Uh, so this is, these are per, this is a pretty significant plant, and it's had a pretty significant impact on the community. Oh, yeah, yeah. On, on the side of the, all the fire equipment, ambulance and fire trucks, there's a picture of a coal miner. In one hand, he's got a, a pick, a coal pick. In the other hand, he's got the uh, nuclear energy, like the globe with the, uh, like the big circles on it. Oh, like a, and, a, a, a hydrogen atom. Yeah, 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 yeah that's it. And, and and then it says on all the things, from coal to atoms, Braidwood Fire Department. So, <laughs> Wait, yeah. What, Braidwood, they've been putting out fires, coal fires and nuclear fires? since. <laughs> such... Coal, well, you know, they take their energy from oh, coal to atoms. Sure. they got this painting, painting of the guy on the side of the trucks. That's pretty cool. I like and, that. And, and that the cooling lake they built is monstrous, mm. uh, and it's excellent for fishing. They held tournaments out there every year and collect. Fifty thousand dollars for a Ronald McDonald House, or for this place, or so for some charity, you know, because mm-hmm. the water's warm all year round. The fish prosper, right? So, uh, Has anyone ever caught like a, a, a three-eyed fish, like in The Simpsons, like Blinky? <laughs> no, people no. used to tease me yeah. when I lived, uh, when I worked up north. I was in air freight by the airport. Oh, you got that place in Braidwood? You got frogs with three legs and stuff? Yeah, <laughs> no. five legs, not three. There's a at the south end of their cooling lake. There's a town underwater there, Torino. I don't know if you ever heard that. No, what? Like uh, Atlantis? What do you mean underwater? Yeah, it was a coal, it was a coal mining town from. What's the name of it? Torino, T O R I N O. Huh. It, it it prospered till about 1919. They had their own school and grocery stores. It wasn't big. Uh, there's no houses underwater but there's streets and sidewalks under there the houses Get were all out of here are you serious rotted by 1950 yeah i think in 1950 the u.s census actually like says it's a ghost town like officially there was no tenant nobody lived there no more but old timers <laughs> remember fish uh swimming there and stuff wow. they, they had a deep shaft mine there that's uh, you could see the flag slag heap from the very south end of the if you go down the side road there. I had no idea. I know there's a cemetery pretty close to the Cooling Lake, which anyone who's watched zombie movies knows that that's, you never want to put a nuclear draining pool next oh, yeah, to a, yeah. a cemetery for fear of zombies. Yeah, that's but. a Catholic one, Mount Olivet. The tornado went by there a couple of years ago. did a lot of damage in there. Matter of yeah. fact, Dean, Dean Bergman cut a lot of the, the trees and cleaned them up. He's a 
on the side, he uh, sells uh, firewood. Is there anything Dean it. Bergman can't solve? He is. And a, he, he actually. He's a hero. He actually was a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. At one time. Yeah, I know. Between his jobs and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and he lost. He, he was when when the city took that building away from him. Yeah. Oh, the one in the, either, the parking lot, the one with the yeah, the parking lot. He had three buildings there. Yeah. We're going to either take it away, a uh, eminent domain, or you're going to sell it to the grocery store people. Yeah. And he ended up selling it to the, the Tesla that owned the grocery store at the time. Right. But uh, he still had it. The, the service station had uh, tanks underground. He got some kind of grant, but it still cost him like $50,000 to get them, clean them and clean the dirt and everything. And wow. he was in the middle of a divorce. And his wife says, I want half of it now. Ay, ay, ay. So he, he lost a lot of money in that deal. Oh, my God. It, it, in 19, uh, his daughter was born in 1975, 1993, uh, she was going to go to Colorado to train for Olympics karate. She was a track star at high school. Mm-hmm. And coming home from a, she was working at a restaurant in Kankakee, coming down 113, she run off the road by a drunk driver and killed. Oh, wow. And uh, at that time, because of his prominence and her promises, uh, they started a fund, and, and money came from around the country. Uh, they collected over a million dollars, and he gave it all to the school for scholarships. Wow. And, uh, and that lasted probably quite a few years before that ran out. The high school yeah, or the what school? Yeah, the high school for, uh, for college scholarships for wow. students. Well, now, now, so we continue on with the power plant, because a couple things I want to get to before we finish up here. Uh, oh, it, it's... it's uh, uh, it helped the community a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the school gets taxes from it, which is why Reed Custer has such a marvelous school. Uh, groups come in for tournaments, for wrestling tournaments or something. They use Reed Custer because they'll come 50 miles away at different schools because they have the facilities. Well, they have a field house. Uh, I mean, they've would... got like an Olympic-style field house. They've got, I mean, incredible. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But from what I understand, 2006, all that changed because they, they essentially reevaluated the power plant. And I was wondering, because I know there was a deficit of money. When I went to school there, it was like a private school. You know, everyone made fun of the school and like, oh, no, because no one wants to be in high school anyway. But in hindsight, it was the most incredible school I've, I, I could imagine going to for free. It was a private school. But that all got kind of knocked down in 2006 because now they get significantly less money, the school district does, right? It's, they still get quite a few. They, they, every so many years, they battle with them. And right. they, they still do very well. Same with the fire district. We're in the right, fire district. Right, right. So that's how we got it. Great fire department. Yeah, incredible fire uh, department. <laughs> Unbelievable. For whatever station. reason, Braidwood fouled up, and they didn't get the park district there. I've I heard rumors about it. Somebody got a – something didn't work out right. Anyhow, got Little Godly, 480 people. I don't know if you've ever seen their park. They got a I have. $3 million park because yeah. of Edison. Yeah, I know. I saw that. They got a park where they have fishing tournaments. They got a stock pond. They, they've had uh, – Civil War reenactments there. They got that much room. <laughs> I don't know that Civil War reenactments. That's a, I, I'd love to go see that. No, Godly's crazy. I mean, it's why Godly exists. There's like 500 people in the town. And I remember before the field house was built, going down there, because um, they had a, a whole gym center. I mean, they had like a whole fitness center there. And it was like, there's 400 people in the town. It's like, you know, 
Right. It's just incredible. They get, um, they get, they get the taxing from Exelon for their park district. Yeah, yeah. Well, and here's so one last thing on the power plant, which is funny because growing up in Braidwood, uh, we always made fun of the water. It always tasted terrible. It tasted like oil, especially if it was warm. If it was cold, it was fine. But in 2006, the same year that the um, that the school district uh, that it was reevaluated, it was reevaluated because there was tritium lake leaks. Um, in the water supply, and while it was, you know, while it was known, while the EPA said it, it wasn't harmful, I mean, it's still kind of crazy to think that, you know, there's leaks in the water supply, which actually is pretty common around nuclear plants. Um, you know, but but whether it was coal energy or nuclear energy, it's in a lot of ways, it's still harmful to the community. Um, you know, not financially, but environmentally, and you know, it, you almost can't get away from it, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a lot of wells tested. Then uh, the the all, the government's response says it didn't do any harm. It's tri- tritium is a uh, water's H two O. I think tritium is H three O. I guess it did test positive in some wells around there. My my property has a well. I didn't have the water tested, but I got pretty good water. But it, and and right across from the cemetery or block away, there's about a I don't know, maybe a 20-acre lake that uh, Edison did buy some homes along Smiley Road there and knocked them down. And they bought that lake. And I think to this day, they they let it fill up and they pump it down. And there's a big pump there and they drain it. And they let it fill. Maybe it takes months or a year to fill back up. It'll drain it again. So they're trying to suck all the water from the surrounding area if there's any problems. I haven't heard anything about that for quite some time. No, but it is it is crazy the politics that go into a place that big because now there's talk of them closing the plant in order to get you know could be a, a cash grab or whatever. But you know it, it is just it's just funny how you know when it comes to energy, Braidwood's always at the center. I just found that to be an amazing through line. Uh, so from coal to to nuclear, um, you know, and and everything in between. Braidwood is a pretty interesting place, uh, really. I mean, way more interesting than I think people give it credit for. And I think that that's true of all small towns. So I would say if you're from a small town, take another look. See see how your town was formed. And, and you know, you might have some notable people who came out of there, which you're actually going to stick around and talk to me about that for a second because there's actually quite a few notable people besides the ones we've already talked about. Uh, but I got to tell you, George, uh, Kosek, I just want to thank you so much for taking me down memory lane. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for letting me speak. Of course. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to subscribe to the show on the major podcast platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play. We're also on Himalaya. Uh, it's You, you got to go there. You got to subscribe. You don't want to miss an episode. You, you couldn't possibly be kept out of the loop on some of the interesting stuff that we're talking about. And if you really love the show, fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. We got links to the social media pages. We got all the episodes up at the top. You can even sign up for a newsletter, learn all about upcoming episodes, behind the scenes type stuff. Uh, Bottom of the page, social media links. We got Pinterest, YouTube, uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, all that stuff down there. It's an incredible site. And if you like this episode, you may like my other podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. We take pop culture technology stuff you find in movies, comic books, TV, and we explain them in real life with real-life experts, rocket scientists, uh, biologists, um, world-renowned physicists. It's incredible stuff. F-triple-G-B-T.com. That's F-triple-G-B-T.com. That's where you find that. And if you like those shows... You may like everything that I do. DanielJGlenn.com is the place to go. Check it out there. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.